Morning, everyone. The last time I got to be up here, I had to imagine all of you. So I'm really thankful and especially thankful for you to be here and everyone at uh, home or wherever you are uh, doing the live stream. Um, but I'm thankful to see faces. I'm, I'm definitely encouraged, as I know you guys are, with just the opportunity we have to uh, gather in this way and to uh, fellowship afterwards and just to enjoy the scripture and the, uh, though it is hard sometimes to understand just how encouraging uh, it tends to be uh, from a father who loved us even while we were sinners. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be making our way to John 13. Uh, but before we do, I want to bring before you a letter written by a Puritan. Now, from this congregation, I think we have a relative better understanding of Puritans from the ways in which the world understands Puritans. Most university history classes and documentaries or even just brief magazines are going to have a different kind of uh, picture of Puritans, those uh, Americans from so long ago, mainly in New England, who were, according to the world, uh, particularly religiously zealot and opposed uh, many things that the world did, and even down to the most minutest of details. And one of these Puritans was named Christopher Love. And if you observe the letter uh, that I'd like to bring before you, a letter that he wrote to his wife Mary, and you were to just know the contents before actually reading the letter for yourself, it would have seemed to promote a lot of the ideas that the world already has of Puritans, specifically for the understanding that he very, very seriously placed before her in this letter a number of instructions. They were concise of, but not limited to, being in ministry in the church often, being a God-fearing mother continually, praying daily, fostering meekness, refusing to doubt Christ, studying the Bible constantly, and maybe the be-all, end-all, rejecting her own will and choosing God's will. And if you were of the world, you might consider that this man was suppressing and maybe controlling his wife with a dominating hand, and you might assume that the only thing he cared about to give her were principles, but no heart behind them. And if you were to actually know the period of life that Christopher Love was in when he wrote this letter, you'd know that he wrote it from the Tower of London. He was accused and convicted guilty of crimes against the country. And on June 20th, 1651, he was decided by the court to be executed and to be beheaded. During that time, out of an overflow of love for his wife, he decided to, before he was executed, only two months later, to write a letter to her with instructions. And these instructions weren't simple demands that he was leaving behind to keep her in line, but they were a passionate plea for her to prepare herself for a life without him. A life in which this preparation needed to be made, not just in an earthly sense, though he was concerned with this, his letter did include pleas to find joy in his impending death and be content to even consider remarriage, but he was concerned with other things as well. One of the lines that he wrote said, Pour not on the comforts you want, but upon the mercies that you have. Look rather at God's ending in affliction 
than to the measure and degree of your affliction. And that line supposed and revealed a heart behind his instructions to his wife, which is that she would prepare herself with a mind fixed on God, one that understood the sustainment and security of a God who loved her and whose chief concern was that, not only in keeping her mind on God, but in her steps and her obedience towards God, that she would be reminded of the peace that could be found in him. Their letters were very, very beautiful. And the way he opened his letter, that I'd like to read for you briefly, exposes this heart that he had for his wife. And what he desired was that it would be the heart of God exposed to her. And it said this, My most gracious beloved, I am now going from a prison to a palace. I have finished my work, and now I am going to receive my wages. I am going to heaven, where are two of my children, and I am leaving you on earth, where there are three of my children. These two above need not my care, but the three below need yours. It comforts me to think that two of my children are in the bosom of Abraham, and three of them are in the arms of such a careful and tender and godly mother. I know you are a woman of sorrowful spirit, yet be comforted, though your sorrows be great for your husband going out of the world, yet your pain shall be less in bringing your child into the world. You shall be a joyful mother, though you are a sad widow. God hath many mercies in store for you. The prayer of a dying husband for you will not be lost, for as soon as my head is severed from my body, it shall be united with Christ my head in heaven. I've recounted these words a lot of times this week, and it amazes me to see the considerations of a man for his wife and the rest of his family so close to death would be an instructing one. One that desired to guide her heart and therefore guide her steps so that as her best friend and companion left this world, she would know that Though he was gone from her, God would be with her. And it is so re reminiscent that that same conviction and that same compassion and that same instruction took place in a perfect sense, in a morally pure sense, 1,600 years before, as Jesus Christ himself spoke to his disciples and their final instructions upon himself allowing himself to be given over to death. And in those moments before his final hours, surrounded by his friends, his students, who he'd walked with and taught for three years, even in his commands, you can see an overflowing sense of love for them. The two verses that we'll be dealing with specifically are those famous commands in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And you probably know them well already, and they say this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Contextually, verses 31 to 35 are a microcosm of this rest of the Upper Room Discourse. 
Even though it seems to briefly be interrupted by Peter in verse 36, it continues again in chapter 14, continued to chapter 16, and ending with probably the greatest prayer in the entire Bible from Christ himself to the Father in chapter 17. And in this sense, these five verses are almost a perfect summation of the entire discourse. And specifically, in verses 34 and 35, there's a summation of the instruction of how the disciples are to behave to the world, and therefore, as more people would be brought to Christ, how those people, those new Christians, as they would come to be called, would also construct themselves in the church. And so the object of our time today is to consider these parting petitions, these two verses, with the idea of answering this question. Why at this hour of his sorrow and subjection to death would he be commanding them? How could commands be comforting instead of completely overwhelming? That's the question that we're trying to understand. And the idea is that this command, not a suggestion, but a command in this context specifically will help us to understand the heart of God seen perfectly and that his rules for his church, for us, would reveal his righteousness even amidst here in rebellion and rejection, the compassion he had for his disciples and the compassion he has for us. So if you take notes, the proposition is this, that Christ's final commands to love one another are illustrated in two ways so that we would be reassured of God's incomparable love. Christ's final commands to love one another are illustrated in two ways so that we would be reassured of God's incomparable love. And they're very simply broken down, verse 34 and 35, in two ways. And so we'll deal first with 34, which is this. That the commands recall the perfect example of Christ. That they recall the perfect example of Christ. Verse 34, I'll read it for you again. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The initial question maybe you have and scholars have is very straightforward. What is this new commandment and why is it new? If Christ has already been with them for three years, it seems that he or the Jewish people would have had this command before, and they certainly did. In Leviticus 19.18, the clear command was to love your neighbor as yourself. For us as the New Testament church, we understand in Galatians 5 verse 14 that Paul said this is the summation of the entire law, very reminiscent of how Moses summed it up in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy. And even Christ in the disciples, this was not unfamiliar because in his very first discourse in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he said that this command to love your neighbor wasn't only relevant but on their horizons it was to be expanded, that they were to not only love their neighbor, but consider even their enemy as their neighbor. So not only to the Jewish people, but to his disciples as well, this is not a new commandment in terms of its expectation. They knew this expectation was laid upon them, but rather, the point is that it has a new illustration. And the illustration is the qualification of the second half of verse 34, that they were to love as Jesus loved. That the newness of the commandment was from the very mouth of the person qualifying it. 
that the love of Christ was to be seen to them as more lovely and illustrative of the love of God than any other love. Of all the portraits in the hall of love, the one taking all the attention and the one drawing in the people was none other than Jesus Christ himself, the incarnated and perfect face of the love of God now with them. And after that exegesis, most people stop there. Most people stop with figuring out the newness of the commandment, summarize it, I'm supposed to love, and walk away. And so many years later, even us, we, we take for granted the fact that this standard of love, that we are supposedly to love like the perfect Son of God, is an easy thing to grasp. And it seems... Like we can understand the weight of this more if we just get in the minds of the disciples. Just consider the impossible standard that they were being left behind with. These men had walked and talked with Christ. They'd seen his perfect response to every question. And they'd seen his gracious miracles revealing his perfect action towards everyone who came to him who had need. And his glory, though hidden from the world, was revealed to them in his perfection, in every single action of his moment. And now that man is telling them to love like he did upon his leaving. And they must be thinking, how could we ever love like you? It's so reminiscent of Luke chapter 17, verses 5, where a high standard is put upon, not of love in that context, but of forgiveness. That they are to forgive 77 times that they were basically to always forgive. And the response is very natural. Increase our faith. We might even say that the disciples in this moment might even be thinking that this is not only a daunting task, this is an inappropriate task. How on earth could your last words to us be a command to do something there's no way we could possibly fulfill? But at the same time, just consider leaving the disciples' frame of mind and go to Christ's frame of mind. And his frame of mind is the beginning of these commands in verse 31 and 32 when he explains to them where his mind is focused upon. He says in verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. In light of his own mighty mission and his own death, there's no fear of persecution or pain. It is all drowned under an ocean of passion to please the Father first. And in that, we have the beautiful demonstration of the service that we are owed to the Father as his single point pushing him forward. That the Father's love would be worthy of that kind of obedience. He especially considers as this command to give the Father glory. Those marching orders, specifically, that they're not only really worthy of the Father to be obeyed, but... It is part of a mission that will be successful, that it will be completed. 
that now Christ is in the beginning of the end, that he will be glorified. And in such, in providing for them the conclusion of the mission, those marching orders seem to be something that Christ is trying to explain are a comforting thought. When he picks up this again after the interruption of Peter, he begins with that frame of mind to them. In John 14, 1-3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that you may be where I am also. The end is in sight. The mission is going to be completed. It's as if we could remember that very familiar illustration of soldiers marching up a hill that seems to have an impossible enemy force. There's trenches, there's craters, and at the top there is an impossible enemy force that cannot be beaten. But suddenly the commander comes to them and gives them a photograph of them standing victorious on the mountain. It's not photoshopped. It's a real photo. What kind of encouragement would they find knowing that the task to them seems impossible, but clearly it's going to end with success? The command from the king is to love each other, acknowledging that the obligations are specifically given not only to soldiers, but those who are considered citizens of his kingdom. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, our citizenship is not in heaven, and we await from it a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And by that power, it enables us even with the power he had to subject himself and put all things in subjection to himself. We need that kind of hope. We need that kind of promise from a savior with gracious power on our behalf. And we need that to try and reconfigure what exactly the standard is for this command. Because if that's the case, if we are soldiers, if we are servants, even friends of Christ, then he's not calling us to be him. He's him and we're not. He doesn't need replacements. He doesn't need someone to love as himself. He needs people to love like himself. And it seems to explain that he is pointing towards the fact that true love is supposed to have when it's fueled by an obedience to please the Father and the encouragement that the end of that mission will end in success. And in explaining that he has provided the example not to be him but to be like him, we understand that we're supposed to not be him but provide a taste of him. To not present ourselves as the epitome of love, but to take his example and present him. That we would love the Father and therefore present Christ as great as we can, with true desire in our hearts to others to provide a taste of Christ. Paul says as such in 2 Corinthians 2 verses 14 to 17. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of Christ to him everywhere. 
for we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing, to one a fragrance of death to death and the other a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for such things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's words, but men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That our love would be Christ's love in that it would be a sincere love. And that as we seek to be obedient to the Father, it would be more and more pungent to the people in fellowship around us. That is the standard that he has encouraged us to follow through. And it should be relevant to us because, and I say this delicately knowing my own heart, in a situation in which we are familiar with being in church and loving each other, that it still would be foolishness to consider it always easy to love other people in the church. If you know unbelievers, if you work with unbelievers, if they are part of your family, if they are your friends, knowing this standard that we are called to is sometimes easier to love them because we know that they don't have a standard. They are loving as best as they think they can without knowing the perfect standard of Christ. But to us, knowing the standard we often so much put on each other, but not ourselves, it is incredibly easy to be frustrated that the perfection of Christ is not pervading the words of every single person to us. And as soon as someone sins against us, as soon as they frustrate us, as soon as they present themselves in the way that we do not think is Christ-like, if they don't love like we think they need to love, then we place that standard of the perfect love of Christ upon them. We assume that they could be Christ perfectly, that they are tra transgressing the commands of Christ instead of our own commands. And so it's important to understand the heart of Christ that he had for the unity of us by looking at the example of Christ because even at the end of this discourse in chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer, the thing it is loaded with most other, with, other than Christ asking for the strength to continue his mission and that the Father would be glorified in himself in the expectation of meeting with the Father, the one thing on his mind is that the people would be unified that the despondency and the frustration and the quarreling that characterized his disciples and so often characterizes our church would be expunged from their minds and replaced with encouragement, knowing that Christ didn't just die for them and he didn't just die for me, but he died for all of us and for the enjoyment of the fellowship that he provided through his blood. And in that sense, it's supposed to be an encouragement when we lay aside that sin and go towards Christ. Like the preacher said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And what is the reason 
by which he could be the founder and perfecter of our faith, it is because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in this sense, I hope that we can start to see that these commands aren't just rigid for us, but rather they are like Solomon says in Proverbs 16, 24, that pleasant words are as a honeycomb sweet to the soul and health to the bones, that they're supposed to be pleasant because they come from a savior who is compassion and grace incarnate, that his example brings the standard high, but also reminds us that we are the objects of the perfect fulfillment of that standard. And therefore we should see them as coated with grace. Christ wanted to save them in a way that it would go down easy, that he has many soft comforts along with these hard truths, and that there is gravity, of course, but it's not devoid of grace. There is certainly weight to the commandments of Christ, but it is not without the warmth of Christ himself. There's another part of this context that breathes in a lot more of this as well. It's the fundamental thing that most people seem to remember about this discourse, that at this period, at the beginning of the end, at the imminence of the glorification of Christ, the beginning of the end, in light of the mission's completion, all of that is kicked off. Christ's words are begun with the verse 31 preceding thought that he had gone out. Who is the he that had gone out? Well, this entire thing calls important attention to the circumstance of Judas the betrayer leaving Christ and bringing him to his death. It's interesting to see if you read John 13 just by yourselves, that John, in, in remembering this moment of intense pain, and at that time intense confusion, is privately informed by Christ that the satanic injection of Judas is going to happen. John brings attention to the fact that he was the only one of the disciples who actually knew what Judas was going to do. So the amount of heat, the amount of pressure that is cooking in this moment in John's mind when he's remembering it is huge. Consider what's going on in their heads. Of the 11 disciples, because... John was privately told this. Nine of them through this entire discourse are still grappling with the question, am I going to be the one who betrays Christ? Only one of them, John, is thinking, how could one of us betray Christ? And still just after this command, Peter himself is thinking, am I really going to betray Christ? They are all grappling with distraught and different questions about their own ability to make it to the end. They're all dealing with the question of their weakness and their subjection to sin and the fact that no matter what kind of strength they think they have, it's not going to be enough because they're going to leave Christ. And even as Christ himself tells them that, and even as he tells them that in light of the command to love each other, when they're going to leave the one who told them that, 
he makes a differentiation between them. He says of Judas in chapter 13, verse 18, that his betrayal was part of the fulfillment of the scriptures that Christ always knew was going to happen in the Old Testament, always ordained was going to come to pass. But it's different for the disciples. For the disciples, he says it this way in John 15, verses 16 and 17. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you. I put you in this position that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you would love one another. God only gives commands to the ones he's called, to those who are his people. And therefore, he provides the confidence that they will, in fact, execute it even in their weakness. He even reveals to them the power by which it is going to take place. John 16, verses 32 and 33. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone. For the Father is with me. And I have said all of these things. The reason I've put this before you is so that you would have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Even in this atmosphere of the terrifying weakness of men, he tells them that they've called into service and his pattern and his provision of how it is all going to end, and the obedience that can stir a person up to a desire they never had before, a divine desire to fulfill what the Father has commissioned even us to do, would be granted even to the weakest of people. Romans 5, 6 to 8, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For once we'll, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John, in a book that many pastors who I would agree with say is a full exegesis of this moment, John himself speaking so many years later in chapter 4 verses 9 to 11 says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so we ought to love each other. That is the thrust of the command of Christ. If I have loved you, if you know love from me, you should look to me with not only a desire to love others, but that you would look for that capacity to love from the example of Christ, and that you would come before him and say, I need that love. I need that faithfulness, because my love is insufficient for this, but your love is perfectly adequate for this. 
And so in recalling the perfect example of Christ, though it's impossible to match perfectly in our lives, it points us, and consequently others, to graciously finish the goal. And it shows Christ's compassionate concentration demonstrated perfectly. That though men are weak, we are encouraged that we might still be strong to fulfill the commands of Christ because he will win and his kingdom will come. And that is the first way in which the high standard of love is illustrated by the perfect example of Christ. The second is more brief, but is the execution part. The first is the encouragement and the second is the execution in which the second point is that it reunites us as a public testimony to the world. It reunites us as a public testimony to the world. Verse 35, once again, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's amazing to think that in the mind of Christ it is going past the disciples' love for each other and how that love will affect those they have no idea are coming into the body. They should know that because Christ purviewed it in a passage you probably all know well where Christ calls himself the good shepherd. John chapter 10 verses 14 to 19, the charge by which the father gave Christ says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd isn't it good to know that part of the commission of this mission and the ending and fulfillment of it is that he does have people there he does have his elect who are out in the world now waiting for the revealing of a testimony that God has known from the beginning of time before them that they would be saved unto Christ and join this fellowship and become new brothers and sisters. Because in listening to us, holding on to the pattern of Christ and being faithful, they wouldn't hear our voice, but they would hear the voice of Christ himself. And listen, if I can step back for a sec and just recontextualize this for a second, it is important to know that this kind of love, though we understand our weakness, is supposed to be a love that is completely different from the world. And if you look at the world right now, it should not be that difficult. I'm not necessarily a stats person, but in an effort to kind of understand where this is at, I did look at some stats this week. It's almost horrific to try and see what the world is like right now. A 2018 study quoted by Forbes magazine, but originally from The Economist, stated that 22% of the United States and 23% of the United Kingdom say they always or often feel alone, lack companionship, or feel left out or isolated. It's nearly a quarter of both of those countries. In that same survey, participants who are online most frequently defined as 50 or more visits a week. Consider how much 50 seems to fall short of the average amount of times that someone checks their phone in a day. That those people have three times the odds of perceived social isolation. The longer they're on, the greater is going to be the growth of this social isolation. 
another survey only a year later stated this, that nearly 46% of Americans feel left out or alone, and 54% of them say that they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them well. No one. That more than half of Americans feel like nobody knows them well. And it's not just adults. Me being part of the youth ministry, I wanted to see if there was anything indicative of the youth of today, and there is. Google did a survey about its YouTube subscribers after acquiring a YouTube, of course, and says that 70% of teenage YouTube subscribers say that they relate to YouTube creators more than traditional celebrities. And honestly, I think that makes sense. It seems to be the medium that is growing most effectively. But what's crazy is the next stat they say, which is this. Four in ten, four in ten millennial subscribers say their favorite creator understands them better than their best friends. Four in ten youth think that some face a thousand miles away knows them better than the person they most often see. That is the world. That is the love that happens in complete isolation, not just physically now, but through a culture that wants to know each other through platforms, not through expressions, not through a desire for someone else, but a desire for self that will never go anywhere except loneliness. And that is supposed to be the place that the church is coming into. And the encouragement that we have is stated very interestingly in our commands. If you look at verse 34, two of the three love another's are commands. Love one another, love one another. And it changes in verse 35. It doesn't say to love one another, it says to have love. As if love was not something we only do, but also something that was provided for us. And that provision of love is so indicative of one of the major points that he is making in the Upper Room Discourse, which is this. You don't have the pattern only, but you have the power. And that power is that once I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will come to you. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Christ asks the Father directly to pour out his Spirit upon them. And a couple of verses later, in verses 25, that promised spirit would teach his disciples to bring to them the remembrance of everything that was said, that all of this would be read by us now. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 12, the same thing is said, given to us that we might understand God, that we're not just reading, but we're spiritually drinking from the petition of God himself within us. And that in John 15, 26, that the Spirit would not only bear witness about Christ, but he would keep you from falling away. That your faithfulness would be preserved, not only by knowing the outcome, but even now knowing the power by which you have given to you. That is the multitude of promises that are enveloped in the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it is the proof that commands taken by God, though high, are perfectly applicable and doable by his people. Ephesians 4, verse 16. When each part is working properly, a.k.a. when it is using the gifts that are given, not just generated and not just made up, but chosen and given by God himself, it would result in 
making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That our body would be built up in love. That's the same exact promise that he gives here in the Upper Room Discourse. Even in John 15, 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He doesn't expect love to come from trying to figure out what love is other than him perfectly explaining and perfectly reading about and having that witness to your very heart of love. In that sense, it is actually an incredibly simplified command, which is this. Enjoy and be thankful and be encouraged by the fellowship he's provided. That's the command. That just as often as you would speak the gospel truth and know it well and teach it well, just as much as that, you would be in this body and enjoy it. That's an incredibly encouraging command. That we would simply come to the Lord's table, to fellowship groups, to your care communities, to Sunday mornings, to the homes of each other, and enjoy the fact that you're no longer a prisoner of sin. And that as you enjoy that, more people would come. The elect of Christ would see this be drawn to it, that you might explain the gospel to them, and they would see a picture of the gospel in your enjoyment of the friendships and the fellowships that he's provided for us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. John 15, verses 11, says something so wonderfully similar. And it says, These things I have spoken to you so that you might have joy and that your joy may be full. That's the command. That kind of enjoyment and that kind of beauty is going to get us through anything that is coming. If you feel like this world is particularly unpredictable, I completely get it. It is not encouraging to look in the world and try and figure out how we are supposed to behave and how we are supposed to love. But the foundational principle that Christ had when he was leaving this world was simply that you would enjoy the unity provided and it would get you through whatever is going to come up. That you would know that he has provided people for you who also have the witness that we need desperately. It's one similarly, and I'd like to end with this, that another man on his way to execution, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man killed by the Nazi party in 1944, himself was holding on to. In a particular letter, he wrote to the churches that even amidst the terrible persecution of Nazi-occupied Germany, he was holding on to and exclaiming to other men, telling them that the Church of Christ was growing in that terrible environment. He said this, From early times, the Christian Church has considered akideia, which is the melancholy of the heart or resignation, to be one of the mortal sins. Psalm 102, which says, Serve the Lord with joy. 
Thus do all the scriptures call out for us. For this our life has been given to us, and for this it has been preserved for us unto this present hour. This joy which no one can take from us belongs not only to those who have been called home, but also to those who are alive. We are one of them in this joy, but never its melancholy. How are we going to be able to help those who have become joyless and discouraged if we ourselves are not born along with courage and joy? Nothing contrived or forced is intended here, but something bestowed and free. Joy abides with God, and it comes down from God and embraces spirit, soul, and body. And where this joy has seized a person, it spreads it is carried away, and it bursts open closed doors. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross, and that is why it is invincible and irrefutable. Enjoy the gospel, and enjoy the brotherhood, and it will grow and persevere no matter how tough times get, no matter how frustrating our experiences are, no matter how weak we seem, because he has promised us that he is better, he has prayed for us, and he is sustaining us even now. Let's pray. Lord, you are always good, though we do not always know it. You always sustain us, though we so often feel weak. And you have encouraged us that you will lead us home. Lord, let us hold fast to the truth that your commandments are hard and sometimes difficult to be obedient to, but you have given us every reason to know that we can perform them and that you will lead us home to worship you one day eternally. Let us hold on to that. Thank you for this time, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen.